Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, powered by Encore Research Group. Go to EncoreDocs.com. Welcome to MedEvidence, the truth behind the data. Today, topic is diabetes, mostly type 2 diabetes. But first off, welcome to Dr. Michael Corrin. And our guest today is Sharon Smith. You're a nurse, so thank you for joining us today. All right, first of all, lots to talk about with diabetes, but I think the most important thing is, what is diabetes? Well, it's a great question, and it's always great to be with you and have this discussion. And fortunately, I have Sharon here, who is uh, an amazing nurse, uh, incredibly knowledgeable about diabetes, has actually spent most of her career doing diabetic education, and um, is a tremendous resource. So uh, I'm going to bring sort of the clinical trial perspective uh, to remind everybody I'm a cardiologist. So some people would argue why is he even talking about diabetes, but I'm going to make that case by the end of this whole session. And just my perspective in terms of some of the history. So so get, getting into what you asked, what is diabetes? Well, what does the word mean? We can start with that. So diabetes, like most of these medical words, is has Greek origins. And it basically means to pee a lot. Okay. It, it means to di, diabetes well, is definitely like learn something right, new. to flow through lots of urine, I think is exactly what it means. And that was the initial observation. So going back to ancient times, uh, Egyptians uh, described diabetes, and they knew that people peed a lot and that they didn't do well. So that, that was the, the basic concept. And then we started developing the concept of different types of diabetes. And this is where we get into the type 1 or type 2. In, in a broad sense, type 1 means you don't make enough insulin. And type 2 means you have insulin, but you don't use it the way you should. So just very basic um, concepts. And then um, we also use the term sometimes diabetes mellitus or mellitus. Some people can pronounce it that way. And you know what that means? Trivia question? Don't. I, I have no uh, okay. idea. Well, uh, mellitus means sweet. Okay. Mm. So basically, you have a lot of sugar in your urine, mm. and it's sweet. So I think I, I think this is correct. That dogs used to like diabetic urine because of the sweetness. Mm. So they would they would be fascinated by it and lick it and, and, and consume it. And this got people understanding that the people that had this condition put out a lot of sugar in their urine. Mm. And the it doctors came. used to test it. That's right. They used to taste it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Taste the urine to see if their patient had huh. sugar in the urine. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, that's just a little bit of a background in terms of what the condition is. And I, I'd also say it's a growing condition uh, with the obesity epidemic in the United States and elsewhere. More and more people have type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And I think I read something that the number of people with diabetes has doubled every, uh, you know, 10 to 20 years. Mm. It's 95 to 96% of all diabetics are type 2 diabetics. Right. And, 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 that's, and that's good to know as well. And you're not born with type 2, right? No. Okay. Yeah. And type 1, by the way, usually presents itself in teenage years. Mm-hmm. There is an immune element of type 1 uh, diabetes where people probably have some sort of infection as a child. And that leads to an immune reaction that prevents your body from making insulin that's useful. Okay. In a very broad sense. It's, it's more complicated than that. But There's um, a classification called LADA, mm-hmm. latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood, and we're seeing more and more of that. Mm-hmm. So it's hitting them in their 40s. Ooh. 
yeah, yeah. typing in at later life. And, and, and interestingly, another little theory about this, just to, before we really get started, <laughs> is that uh, people in warmer climates seem to have less diabetes than people in colder climates. And the reason was felt that people in warmer climates got more infections early in life that uh, allowed their immune system to develop in certain ways that did not lead to type 1 diabetes. Whereas the delayed infections mm-hmm. in the northern climes uh, were more likely to lead to that. That was a theory that we talked about. I don't know if people still believe that, but I'll throw that out there. <laughs> Therefore, warmer climates. <laughs> right, right. So, so that it's sort Move of interesting thing. Yeah, right. Move to Florida. Yeah, the other, there, there are other elements to that. So sometimes because you don't exercise as much, perhaps, in northern climates, you tend to be more overweight. And people, you know, more, more sort of in southern climates, the uh, Latin populations, uh, Middle Eastern populations and others uh, maybe have less incidence of diabetes as others. But anyhow, these are some interesting theories to, to kick around. Okay. Completely not relevant to the rest of the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, it's good to have that base. There you go. There you go. So, so let me talk a little bit about drugs. Obviously, the, the thing that we use for, for diabetes so is medications. Right. And it's, it's actually overwhelming. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack when you start talking about diabetic drugs. There, there are 10 classes of diabetic drugs, and they all have slightly different pros and cons. And literally, a lot of things that we've done in our clinical research center over the last 30 years is to understand the different classes and understand which patient population should get which medication. And it's, it's very, very important. So just to go back, um, the discovery of insulin is a little bit over 100 years old. It was, it was discovered in Toronto, Canada, where they're able to isolate insulin. I, I forget which animal it was from, but th- do you remember which, which animal it was from? Mm. But it was, it was some animal model. And they found you know, the, this hormone that's responsible for glucose regulation. And uh, insulin has been the primary treatment for diabetes you know, for over 100 years mm. at this point. And... Um, you know, between, say, you know, the early 1920s when we first had insulin and probably through 1970s, um, you know, one of the questions was whether or not aggressive control of sugar levels was really important. So back when I was a resident, uh, we had these horrible complications of diabetic ketoacidosis where people had you know, super high sugar levels, they developed ketones in their blood, their, their systems became acidotic, and they could die of complications of this. They can go into shock, their kidneys can shut down, and horrible things could happen. And actually, that was one of the real tests of a good medical resident when, when I was growing up. And so you had a diabetic ketoacidosis patient. If that person came in at you know, 8 o'clock at night, you knew you are going to be awake for the rest of the night mm-hmm. because we would give these people insulin but you, the, the tricky part of treating them is that once you gave them insulin, their sugar levels came down, you still had to give them more insulin to get rid of the ketones. And you would actually put them at risk for hypoglycemia. So instead of stopping the insulin, you had to start giving them sugar. Huh. And that was one of the real tests of how skilled you were in internal medicine was to be able to manage that. And it was also actually one of the arguments against limiting residence hours because it was a disease that played out over 24 to 48 hours. And you literally had to you know, check glucose levels and, and you had to uh, check the, the, the other electrolytes, look at urine output, make sure the kidneys were, were staying open. You had to hydrate these patients and you had to constantly figure and change the type of fluids that you would give the patients. Mm-hmm. So you had so, to be sharp. Yeah, you had to be very sharp and, and you had to be on top of it. You couldn't just say, I'm going to sleep for six hours and then see what happens. Right. And so... It was one of the arguments for sort of old school doctoring, which uh, doesn't happen anymore because now doctors are trained in shifts. So it's interesting how that, that culture has changed. And diabetic ketoacidosis was an important part of that training difference 
that I got that some of the other newer doctors did not get. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. an interesting, another little interesting tidbit. Hmm. In any event, uh, getting back to the drugs. So you know, starting in probably the 70s and 80s, there were other choices of drugs. And now instead of just shots of insulin, there are oral agents. A, a drug class called sulfonylureas were, were a class that was used frequently back, back in the old days. Still and, is. And it still is. And we, well, we can talk about whether mm. it should be, but that was, you know, it, was a, it was an important class that was used. And, but the argument was made, there's a lot of skeptical physicians saying that, do we really need to get overly aggressive at getting the blood sugar down? Isn't it just about preventing them from being hospitalized? Make sure it's not really, really bad. But are we, are we doing more harm than good? Because once you start treating people more aggressively, there's a risk of hypoglycemia and going into hypoglycemic shock. So you remember the Klaus Van Bulow case where he had insulin at home and allegedly his wife overtreated him with insulin and he, he uh, kept on coming back to the New York hospitals with incredibly low blood sugars and no one could figure out quite what it was. So there's actually a concern about treating diabetes too aggressively. So a landmark clinical trial was, was done called the UK PDS study. UK United Kingdom PDS is Prospective Diabetes Study. And prospective is one of those clinical trial words. So prospective means before the fact. Okay. Again, we, we talked about the fact that it's very difficult to predict the future. And um, prospective means that you have to make your decision beforehand and see if you're right. Mm. So nonetheless, uh, they did a study where they looked at more aggressive versus less aggressive control of diabetes. And, and they actually started designing the study in the, in the like mid-70s and went on for 20-plus years. And there's a lot of things that came out of the study. And it's funny, it was a study that was very large by the standards of the time, but not so large by current standards. I think they had like 5,500 patients in the study. But what they did show is that more aggressive treatment of diabetes was better than less aggressive treatment. But the findings were also somewhat controversial in that what they're able to show is that things like eye damage was affected by getting better glycemic control, but not necessarily cardiovascular events. And so the term that we use for that is microvascular versus macrovascular. Macrovascular would be cardiovascular events. Microvascular would be such complications of diabetes such as uh, retinal problems or blindness. And, mm -hmm. and we and uh, neurological neuropathies mm -hmm. that affect the, the, the nerves and, and, and other things that affect the very, very small blood vessels. Okay. Uh, kidneys obviously are damaged by diabetes as well, mm -hmm. probably a, a number of mechanisms. Yeah. But we know that diabetics have a higher risk of heart attack and stroke, and that's considered macrovascular. Okay. So when, when that study came out, there was the movement towards more aggressive treatment of diabetes, but there was also a little bit of skepticism about whether or not the most damaging part of diabetes, which is these horrible heart attacks and strokes, would be preventable. So fast forward, and then some newer drugs came out, and there was a, uh, a class of drugs called TZDs. Now, pronouncing that word is, is a challenge. It's a, let's see, uh, thiazodienedienes, correct? Thiazo, pretty good. Don't thiazo, on that one. Yeah, TZDs. TZDs. Okay. So I actually said it. I think pretty well. So anyhow, so it was a class of drugs that was felt that should have more cardiovascular benefits, and those were developed in the in actually the 1990s. And, and actually, it was a drug that I cut my teeth on as a clinical trialist because it was being developed in the early to mid 90s when I first started doing this clinical trial work. So there was a drug that actually got approved called troglitazone, which was the first TZD to be developed. 
And it became a very, very controversial uh, drug. I, I think the trade name was Resulin, if I remember correctly. Do you remember Resulin? Barely. Okay, well. Way yeah. before my time. Right, right, before your time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably in high school back then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so a res, Resulin was um, out there. And it was very controversial because it went to the FDA. And there was an FDA physician assigned to the project who looked at the whole database and noticed that there were more than a comfortable level of cases of liver failure in people that were exposed to the drug. And this particular physician recommended against approval of this new class of drugs. And a lot of, their, a lot of people are upset about that because there was so much promise about this new class and, and thinking that we needed to move on from just insulin and, and some of the older drugs. So uh, the, the drug company that developed that was called Park Davis, and we actually did a lot of work with Park Davis back then. And um, they actually uh, went to the FDA and asked for that physician to be removed from this particular evaluation. And their argument was that he was difficult to work with. He was swearing during the meetings. Uh, it, they, they didn't really argue specifically the science, but they just said that he was unprofessional. Mm. And they were successful at getting this physician off the case. And he was replaced by another person, and that other person was sort of more lenient, maybe more friendly to the drug maker, and the drug got approved. Unfortunately, as we got more and more information, once this product got into the marketplace, this initial concern about the liver was actually true. And within a year or two, the drug was taken off the market because of these mm. cases of fulminant liver damage from this drug. Wow. So it was a very, very interesting thing uh, in terms of the regulatory part of what right. we do. But it also set the stage for what we're doing now, which is why I'm mentioning the story. And we'll get into that in a second. So uh, what happened next is that um, there are other drugs in, in this TGZ class that were developed, some which are still on the market, that didn't have this idiosyncratic uh, effect of troglitazone. And a lot of people still think troglitazone is a good drug, by the way, with this one little weirdo side effect. But the TZDs also cause more fractures, as I recall. Weight gain. And weight gain, yeah. So there, mm -hmm. there, were other, there were other problems with them. So it was not a perfect drug class. Mm -hmm. What happened is that the FDA, after this experience, said, okay, if you're going to develop a new class of diabetes drugs, you need to do a lot more safety than what we were doing before. And interestingly, a lot of that safety was looking at cardiovascular safety. And that's how this poor cardiologist got involved. Ah. So now we were doing studies in diabetic patients, and they need cardiologists involved to look at cardiovascular safety. And in our next segment, we're going to talk about some of those new classes and why we found something really very, very different than we expected when we looked at cardiovascular safety. I'm your host, Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of MedEvidence, the truth behind the data. Evidence. 